Good morning. I invite your attention to 1 John chapter 1. Back there close to the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 1. Decided to preach through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, so this will be the first message, and Lord willing, we'll cover the, the first chapter. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John was written by the Apostle John, as well as the 4th Gospel, which we are looking at in our Sunday school lesson, and the book of Revelation. John was an early follower of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus way back in the days of John the Baptist. For an occupation, he was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, which we can read about, and he fished along with his father Zebedee and his brother James. And we know James and John, their reputation there for a while, they earned the, they earned the, the label Sons of Thunder. These are the two brothers that wanted to call fire down from heaven on the Samaritan village there in Luke chapter 9. John became one of the three most intimate disciples of Jesus. Himself, along with uh, Peter and James, were with Jesus when he healed the daughter of Jairus. He was th- they were there when Jesus was transfigured and also close by while Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the book of John, we will read many times that he is a disciple whom Jesus loved. John refers that a number of times so why did John write the, these three epistles here? And there could be a number of reasons. I would like to read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Not something we're going to cover this morning, but as far as the reason for writing the letter, uh, we have a reason here. 1 John 5, verse 13, telling us, These things that I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So writing to the believers, and I I like this reason, that you may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Written to those who believe so that you and I, the believers, can have the assurance of eternal life. There are many, some that say we cannot know if we're going to go to heaven after we die. And here, John is writing so that we can know that we have eternal life. Back to, first, back to the first chapter, as you will see, uh, no uh, reference to who it is written to, no greeting, you go to the end, no farewell. So John's writing to the, be, those who believe to, the, to the, the, large, the church at large. Then we could ask, what was his burden? If you go to a lot of these New Testament books, Maybe not necessarily the, the first, the Gospels are written about the life of Christ and some of the other letters. There's a reason for writing them. And what was the burden? And with this letter here, as well as with many, there was widespread false teaching in the New Testament church. And here we see this one here. The reason for this was uh, the false teaching known as Gnosticism. And they taught that all matter is evil and spirit is good. So anything that can be seen or touched is, is classified as evil, and of course spirit would be good. So they were saying Jesus Christ, which we know came to this earth, this earth they, their, their theory was he's either a ghost that seems to have a human body, or he has dual personality, sometimes divine, 
and sometimes human. So as a result of the false teaching, if you can imagine that being in the church, there was confusion about Jesus because he claimed to be God, but he lived here on this earth in human form, which many thought because he could be seen and touched, it was evil. And I had to think about how so many times people reject Jesus Christ, and we saw that in our Sunday school class this morning again. And I, over and over, as, as you read about that, as, as you study that, it, it just burdens my heart that people just could not, could not see Jesus for who he was. You know, he came, and the Jews, for example, which we would talk about this morning a little bit, they were clinging to the Old Testament law. And they said, this is the letter, this is what we follow, and along come Jesus, which is in the New Covenant. They said, no, this just doesn't fit. And so they rejected him. But so many times people reject Jesus Christ, but then they go back and they use his mission to confuse people with their false teaching. And I guess sometimes you could say it's one thing to reject him, let it go, and move on. But no, that you were using his mission to, re, uh, to confuse people with their false teaching. I believe that's going on today. But John does a good job with that verse I read earlier in removing confusion and simply stating the, the, the solution. He says that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So this morning, think about it that way. There's a lot of false teaching going on, but the truth of it is, as John points out here well, first of all, you may know you have eternal life and just simply believe on the name of the Son of God and the confusion will, will go away. John uses his time wisely here to warn the believers against the deception, the false teaching that was going on and that was being spread. And then we look here at this, at 1 John, and the theme is God is light, God is righteous, and God is love. So a little bit of an introduction there to the, this, uh, the book here of 1 John. I got a short story to tell before we, uh, we jump into this chapter that, that ties in well with what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the title is The Keeper of the Springs, written by, by Peter Marshall. And he tells about a town nestled in, in a valley with large mountains all around it. And, and way up on the hills, there was a man who was called the Keeper of the Springs. So he would roam the hills up top, and he would look looking for springs. And if he come across a spring, he would clean all the leaves and the debris and the mud and the scum out of this spring so that the water that flowed out of this spring was clear and pure and fit to drink. So he would go to, from spring to spring just cleaning them out. So all these springs up in the hills, they eventually flowed into a stream, which went, headed down into the town, and the town was blessed with clear, pure water. And for years this was the case. Then the problem arose when the city council decided, you know what, that man up there, he's taking a salary, and we don't need him. So they cut his salary, and in replace, they said, we're just going to build a concrete reservoir. So they, the, the, the keeper of the springs, he quit going around to the springs and just left them go. And from his, his hut way up on the hills, he watched as this concrete reservoir was built. And after it was built, sure enough, it filled with water. But you can about imagine what happened. The water that filled this here reservoir, on the top, it was brown, scum, green, scummy, algae stuff grew on top of this reservoir. And you fast forward just a little bit, and sure enough, sickness entered the town. Because they were taken from this, from this water, which was not clean, was not pure, and was not fit to drink. 
So city council had another meeting and they realized that they made a mistake. So back up to this hut they went, they found the young, the keeper of the spring, so to speak, and they said, will you go back to your job? Sure. So he returned to his chore of cleaning out the springs, and again, the reservoir turned nice, I mean, the water in the reservoir turned pure, and the sickness in town faded, children were again playing as well, and life went on. And he closes the story with a question, with a fact and a question. Number one, you're the keeper of your spring, and number two, have you been neglecting it? Now think about that a little bit as we're thinking about our lives and ask to just answer the question, what kind of material are we allowing into our homes? What are we reading? And who are we listening to? When we think about, we're looking here about uh, light and, and darkness, about sin and purity, what are we allowing into our homes? What kind of lives are we producing? We have, it has been said that we are an outcome of what we take in. Now, the question we could ask, are we drinking from clear streams and are we walking in the light? What are we allowing into our lives? For, for what we allow in is what is going to come out. The title of the message this morning is Walking in the Light. And I have two points from chapter one. Number one is the word of life. And number two is walking in the light. So, the word of life, I'm going to read uh, first four verses in 1 John 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So remember the false teaching that John is exposing. Matter, or anything that can be touched or seen, is evil. So John opens his letter with a statement about Jesus Christ. That which was from the beginning, speaking clearly about our Lord. And I like the way John writes with authority here. Can you you sense his excitement or we can say his zeal as he is about to reprove a point. To reveal darkness and to remove confusion. As a close disciple of Jesus, John was an eyewitness. What we are reading here is John saw with his own eyes. He is an eyewitness. No speculation. This is truth. John can pen what he is, can write what he wrote here because he heard the words directly from Jesus Christ. John himself looked upon the Lord. He saw Jesus every day, possibly for three years. And he's here stating that he touched Jesus with his very hands. And he's aware that Jesus is 100% human and at the same time 100% divine. And John is writing to declare with certainty that Jesus is both God and man. And he's trying to drive this point because it is so important because of the false teaching that the church was facing. So if you were living back in the day and you were trying to decide what's right and what's wrong, 
and the teaching that was going around, then John writes this, kind of like to, to clear the air. If the Gnostic teaching was true, then uh, Jesus, who was God, could not be man at the same time. And we know the truth of that as well. So John starts at the beginning. That which was from the beginning. He goes back as far as we can go. If you go back that far, before anything ex existed, what do we find? We find God. He was there. Genesis 1.1. The word of life that we're looking at here this morning did not begin to exist in that little town of Bethlehem because Jesus existed way back with the, in the beginning with the Father. Verse 2. The life that was manifest, that was revealed, and we have seen and bear witness. It says, he was with the Father. And the Father, Father God exposed him or showed him unto us. It was the everlasting word that became human Jesus, which we can read about in, in the Gospels. And again, the tone of, that John's using as he's declaring the reality of Jesus' humanity. John is not writing about a vision that he remembered from a previous night. John is not writing about a spirit. He is describing flesh and blood. He's describing an actual human being. And I repeat, John walked and talked with Jesus. He saw the miracles that Jesus did, and he stood close by when Jesus died there on the cross. We just come through Easter, but we know the story. A few days later, we're talking about John for, for, uh, for a little bit here. John went and he saw the empty tomb. John saw the grave closed lying in a way that convinced him that Jesus has risen from the dead. And after his resurrection, John saw the scars on Jesus' hands. And John wrote what we're looking at this morning. And then John has the authority to write that he has seen and he knows the word of life. And because of John being that close disciple, I feel we need to pay close attention to what he is writing. As one of the closest disciples he's writing to and telling us this morning, Jesus is alive. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him talk. He is the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, that who is, I'm writing and declaring him unto you. And he moves on and says, verse 3, that we can have fellowship with him. To know Jesus Christ brings the believer into a living union with God, fellowship with the Father and the Son. So God revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And our Father loves us and cares for us deeply, and he desires to have that fellowship with you and I. Jesus came to the earth to show us that we can know God personally and have a fellowship with him. Kind of the gospel there in a nutshell. J.R.W. Stout explains the word fellowship is a Christian word that denotes, I, I quote, common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling spirit which is a spiritual birthright to all Christian believers. You know, can we sense that and feel that level of fellowship or participation with God? And it's a, it's a, a fellowship the world knows nothing about. But what does fellowship with God look like? Think about it a little bit. Are we fellowshipping with God? Did you fellowship with him this morning and throughout the week? What does it look like? On just a few here. We become acceptable with him. That takes us to the next step. We can relate to him. We can talk to him and share with him. He, he is with us throughout each day. And we are so close. And what do we do? After he, upon his request, we pass our cares off to him. And he is simply so close, we just, we just trust him to meet our needs. And we receive our strength from him. 
as we face trials and temptations throughout the day. And much more can be added. Verse 4, John says he's writing these things on the reason that your joy may be full. Along with the fellowship we have with God, joy is available to all of God's children. What is joy? Joy is described as an inner gladness, a deep-seated assurance and confidence that ignites a cheerful heart. Are we living this morning with that joy within? Do you have that inner gladness, that deep-seated pleasure? It is said a cheerful heart leads to cheerful behavior. Do we have that joy of the Lord, as we see in verse 4, in our hearts? Joy that rises above one's circumstances comes through fellowship with Jesus Christ. Let's not let circumstances get us down because we have that joy within that rises above. James 1, 2, and 3. My brother, in familiar verses, count it all. What? Joy. When you fall into diverse temptations, various temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The question could be asked, how can we experience joy when we're, while we're facing trials and temptations? The, the answer is, or one of them, when we're walking with God and facing trials, we recognize God is in control. And then we step back and realize he may be using the current situation to test our endurance. And to develop within us character traits of perseverance and patience and reliance on him. And that goes right back to the fellowship we talked about. That God wants us just to be close to him. So God's way of fellowship is what? It's close relationship. It's growing spiritually and he wants to change us to be the person that he wants us to be. Are we experiencing? Do we recognize who Jesus is? Are we experiencing that fellowship? And are we filled with the joy that John is writing about? Can we see the picture this morning? John makes a point clear that Jesus is alive, he is real, and he is the word of life. And he revealed himself to many. And God sent his son to the earth to help us find our way to him. And fellowship or relationship with God is is the key. And as we see in verse 4, inner joy will be the result of our obedience to him. This morning, brothers and sisters, I trust that we recognize and we know that Jesus is alive. I trust that we have fellowship with him. I trust that our joy, that we are, our hearts are full of that inner peace and joy with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the second point, walking in the light. John, 5, John 1, verses 5 through 10, the rest of the chapter. This then is a message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Excuse me. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John provides a description of God here in verse 5. The message we heard, declare, he says this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
God is, is light. He is ultimately holy, utterly righteous, and morally pure. Did you ever uh, try to form a picture of God in your mind? Uh, who, who is God? And try to form that picture. Sometimes we try to do that with people. But did you ever try to do that with God? And does it match John's description? What is light? Light is, is absolute and, and pure. Light not producing shadows. And to say that God is light is actually a statement about his holiness. That's the God that we are serving. Nothing about God is wrong. There is no imperfection in God. There's no spot or blemish on his character. In him, as we see in verse 5, no darkness. And also just look at it as, as light with, with unlimited power. That's who God is when he is that and, and so much more. And it's, it's particularly important for us to think properly about God. Not that we can actually form a picture in our mind of who he is, but we need to think properly about him because the way we think about him is going to determine the kind of life that we're going to live day by day. You know, we get up in the morning, well, I'm serving, okay, we're serving God today, and God is, is light. God, God is pure, and it'll change the way that we go about our day. Light represents what is true, and light represents what is reliable, and that is God. In John 8, 12, then Jesus spake unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So the opposite is darkness, and darkness represents a falsehood and sin, which is obviously not of God. And the word darkness describes both uh, the state and the works of a person. Darkness symbolizes sin and everything that life should not be, everything that we should, should not do. But this morning, as we look at the message that John is, telling, is declaring unto us, that everything, everything that God is, everything right and everything good, and no trace of darkness. So that's the picture that we should have in our minds of God. God is pictured in our mind, and he is just and absolute and perfect. And that is the God that we are serving. I think we appreciate, I trust we appreciate the fellowship we saw in verse 3 and the joy in verse 4, that feeling we have. And I think, hope we all agree that's where we want to be. But the question is, will verse 6 change our position? If we say that we are walking in fellowship with God, but at the same time walking in sin or in darkness, we notice a problem there in, in verse 6. Darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. In the same way that sin cannot exist in the presence of God. And verse 6 makes it clear. We, we cannot maintain an ongoing fellowship and relationship with God and at the same time be walking in darkness. To continue walking in darkness and of sin while claiming to be a follower of God, as we see, is a lie. And today, I trust we're all thankful for that. We're living in a day of grace. We're thankful for, for God's forgiveness when we do wrong. But what we see here is we're to avoid a daily walk in sin and darkness. You know, day after day journey in sin and when being unwilling and, uh, to repent. The song we sing occasionally is, is Christian walk carefully. 
And the question could be asked, are we careful with our walk? Are we careful where we are walking? Ephesians talks us to walk, tells us to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Is that us? Are we imitating the steps of our Savior? Is our life pure like that picture of God we formed in our minds a little earlier? Where are we at? And I trust we're not there in verse 6. Verse 7 switches then to the positive side. And here we have, if we're walking in the light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, kind of repeats a little bit what we saw there in verse 5. We can have that fellowship, which we read about. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, when confronted with the truth, true believers, believers will turn away from darkness and walk to the light. This morning in our Sunday school lesson, we talked about how uh, somebody made a comment how children are, are, are attracted to the water. And maybe some adults are as well. We, tend, we, like, we like water. But when confronted with the truth, do we turn to the light? Do we, li- do we tend to go to the light and shun the darkness? And that's what we see we are called to do here in verse 8. And as we think about that process of walking back to the truth of who God is and back into away from sin and into the restored relationship with God, that process is called repentance. And it's a process which God forgives us and cleanses us through Christ's blood. If you notice in this chapter a number of these verses from 6 to, the, to 10, we see the little word if. Over and over again, it's, it's if. And as we journey through life, we, we make decisions. And we have the ability and the privilege and the freedom to choose And here we see if we're going to walk on the lighted path or if we're going to walk on the dark path, which the world around us seems to promote decisions. Are we making the correct decision? To walk in the light, as we see here, signifies a life that is lived in conformity to the revealed word of God. So picture your life and ask yourself the question as you go through your your days, are you walking in the revealed word of God? Does your life line up with the word of God? And that will tell you if you are walking in the light. Verse 7 gives us two benefits for those who are walking in the light. Number one, those who are walking in the light have fellowship one with another. Fellowship here at Myerstown, it's, it's many times has been sweet. After church, in a few minutes here, it's going to get loud, which is good. We have fellowship. And here we see those who are walking in light have fellowship one with another. Uh, the Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion. God never intended for you and I to be detached individuals seeking to be alone. Yes, we take time alone to pray, but as we... He, God designed us to have fellowship one with another. It has been said a breach in our fellowship with one another leads to barrenness in prayer, a loss of joy in worship, an interruption of our fellowship with God. And not saying one overrides the other, but fellowship with one another is key. Those who are walking the light will, have, will be in open communication and in fellowship with others. Does that describe you and I? 
And I like to say, Christians, we're running a race together. We're running a race together as a team. The second thing we see, that those who are walking in the light know that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Because of Adam's sin and disobedience in Genesis, each one of us here this morning, we're born with a depraved, sinful nature. We can read that in the Word of God. That's how we were born. Fellowship with man was God's desire and is still God's desire, but the price needed to be paid. Blood needed to be shed to pay man's sin debt. So what did God do? He sent his one only son to pay the price. And we read about that, how Jesus suffered, crucified, his blood was shed. He paid the price. He died, was buried, in three days he rose. And he's alive today, as we see here in the first couple verses. When we're walking in the light, we're walking in fellowship with God, we are aware that the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed those many years ago, can cleanse us from all sin. The blood of Christ, when applied to our lives by faith, removes sin's violation and works within us a progressive sanctification. And I trust that each one of us, every day, thank the Lord for paying the debt that we could not pay and for washing away our sin. So we switch back. John keeps switching back and forth. In verse 8, he switches back to the dark side again. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There were people who would say uh, and falsely taught that when a person becomes a follower of Christ, the person's nature was removed and he could achieve sinless perfection. And we know how that is not the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 8, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if, we can, if someone says that they're sinless, in reality it's to say, I'm sinless, I'm perfect, I have no need of a Savior. And when we say that, thus making the, uh, the birth, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ completely unnecessary, a dangerous place to be. John 14.6 familiar verse, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then he makes the clear statement. He says, says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So we cannot take Jesus out of our lives. He is the one that we need so we can reach the Father. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with the mouth, thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So let's not go about through life claiming to be sinless because when we do that, it gives evidence that the God's truth has not penetrated our souls. And John makes it clear, anyone who has no need to pray, forgive me my sins, is deceived. Sin is any word, act, thought, desire, omission, or neglect that is contrary to the will of God. Sin includes pride, lack of trust, anger, love of pleasure, and a lot more. And just do just a little bit of a self-test. Where are we at? And I trust that we do not find ourselves there in verse, five, in verse 8. And John, as I mentioned earlier, the writer of these five New Testament books, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, and he was thought so highly of that even Jesus' mother was entrusted into his care and yet the same man says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Yes, 
early in his life, John was called a Sons of Thunder. Maybe not really a positive comment. His character needed some refining. But as he spent time with Jesus, he experienced spiritual growth. And his life was transformed. But yet, as we see here, he was still not perfect. So to say we are perfect and sinless is to completely deny the mission and the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, if we were there, we are in a dangerous place. Then verse 9 is, can I call this the, the beautiful verse? And it changes, it switches sides again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, I, re, I bring out the, the, that word, if the choice is ours, if we confess. And the very first thing I see that's different here in verse 9 when compared to verse 8 is the attitude. You know, when we choose to confess, what happens? What happens? We're admitting our guilt. We, we recognize that we are wrong. And we're aware that we stand in need of a cleansing. And what are we doing when we actually admit and ready to confess? We turn to God. And can we, can we say verse, verse 9 if we can just sum it up in a sentence, I could call that just a beautiful picture. This is where God wants us. Remember we said, no one here this morning can say, I'm perfect, I'm sinless. So we got past that. Romans tells us we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then verse 9 here, if we confess, we're making steps in our spiritual life. And then when we do our part, the remainder of the verse is so beautiful. True confession carries with it a commitment to live freedom from the sin. And we fail to confess. We do ourselves a disjustice when we, are, when we say we confess, but at the same time we're planning to return to our previous sin. When we confess a sin, and a genuine confession, it means we're saying the same thing about our sin as God says about it. So we got to go stand beside God and look at it from his angle. God, I, that, I, what I did was wrong. And we look at it the same way he does it. What we have done wrong is wrong in the eyes of God. It has been said this is the reason so many people are slow to confess their sin. They do not agree with God about it. Maybe that's just an inner struggle. We argue with God. We'd rather just justify our sin by excusing it and saying, well, it wasn't so bad after all. Maybe that goes back to verse 8. But verse 9, genuine confession, I quote, I'm not sure where I found it. Genuine confession is taking sides with God against ourselves. Look at it that way. <clears throat> we recognize we hide nothing from God. Everything is open in his eyes. So instead of being over here in verse 8 and saying, uh or trying to justify, well, it wasn't so bad after all, and looking at our sin from that, we need to get right beside God and take his side against what I've done wrong. And then we see it, we can say from a different angle. and say, you know what, that was wrong. And then we come back and we say, if, then we confess our sins. If, if we acknowledge that we've done wrong, and if, if we've wronged others, Genuine confession includes restitution. And that means going back to somebody else possibly saying, you know what, brother or sister, I'm sorry, I was wrong. 
So the first couple verses, words of that verse, if we confess our sins, there's a lot could be held in there. That's huge. If we do our part, then take note of the blessings that follow. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We serve a faithful God. Remember the fellowship we talked about and the joy we talked about? That's what God has. That's his desire for you and I. That's where he wants us to be. And sometimes we've got to go to verse 9 where we can come back up and have that within us, that joy and that fellowship. He's faithful. He's just. He is going to forgive. And may I add, forget. So, so beautiful. Sin exists in the soul in two different modes. Number one, in guilt, which requires forgiveness or pardon. And then two, in pollution, which requires cleansing. So what's God going to do? He's going to remove the guilt. He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's going to remove the pollution that was caused or brought about by our sin. And can I say there, just another a beautiful picture. Christians although they sin less, are not sinless. So we're not going to go about indulging all kinds of a wickedness. No, we will, we're not perfect. But we're, we, so we're not sinless, but we are a sinless, sin, to sin less, not as much as mainstream society. And I like to look at it this way. We are to pursue a standard of perfection. No, we were not, we're not perfect, but that should be within us the desire. Or should I say, as we looked at earlier, our attitude. Do we have that within us? You know, I had that desire. I want to pursue perfection. But that does not mean that we are never going to fail. But when we do fail, what happens? What is God asking us to do? We deal with a situation. We go to the Father. Verse 9, we confess our sins and we seek forgiveness. Just a little bit. Unconfessed and unconfessed sin. It causes mountains of trouble and mountains of stress. But I'm convinced God does not want us to live that way. And that's why we see in verse 9, I think the heart of God just begging us to be open and to confess because God is there with a large pitcher ready to pour out his blessings upon us and his blessings are forgiveness and cleansing. We could also look at unconfessed sin as being wrapped around with chains, unable to move, struggling to live, struggling to breathe in a horrible condition. We hear about the chains of sin but what does, do, what does confession do? It brings freedom and restores the joy that we see there in verse 4. I quote, It is the birthright of every child of God to be cleansed from all sin. That I think we're aware of. To, and then to keep himself unspotted from the world and so to live as never more to offend his maker. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I trust that's your heart's desire. Not only striving to perfection, but first of all, we confess and then do our part never again to offend our maker. Allow this to come from a desire within. Let's not just go through life just trying to sneak by, trying to get by with as much as we can, but just to be open. That's where God wants us to be. 
Even though some choose not to be open, God can still see everything. Verse 10, similar to verse 8, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So those who claim sin is perfection are actually saying God spoke untruth when he said what he said in Romans 3, all have sinned. But John takes it a step further, end of verse, and says those who say what we see there simply do not know God. So I trust we're not there in verse 10 either. And we get to the end of the, end of the chapter, and I think when we get to end of verse 10, it should just motivate us to go back and reread verse 9, and that is the attitude has changed if we confess our sins. God is there, ready, willing, able just to cleanse and forgive. So as we go throughout the week and throughout our lives, let's follow the word of life. I think we're aware of who Jesus is, and he is alive. Let's walk in the light. So when we're walking the light, we're not walking in darkness. Let's strive to live pure lives. Just have that desire. I want to live and do what is right, free from the darkness of sin. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're cleaning out our springs. So what's flowing from us, what should be flowing from us, and I trust is, is that rivers of clean and pure water keeping our lives following verse 9 clearly when we do our part God is there God said brother sister I'll take care of you if and when we do God's blessings will be poured out let's pray Father God we just come before you here this morning this with thankful grateful hearts and I pray for each soul here Lord, I pray that each soul has found their place there in verse 9. And if not, I pray they can go there, confess. And when we do so, Lord, you will just forgive and cleanse us. I pray, Lord, that every soul here this morning could know you as a personal Savior, that you are alive. Also, Lord, that we could have that fellowship with each other and with you and that joy in our hearts, that we could be walking in the light, no darkness within God just experiencing your fellowship as you call it, as you want, as your desire for us, God. If there's any here that I have not, I trust they can make that step and to get right with you. And I pray, Lord, that each soul here this morning could have that open communication, fellowship and relationship with you. Thank you for your word. Just be with us throughout the reign of this day and throughout the week. In the name of Jesus, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.